Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. I was tracking this porcupine every day and I couldn't find him. And I finally decided to crawl down into the porcupine den. It was during a blizzard. And I knew it was very risky because if I ran into any problems, nobody would be able to come to help me for days until the storm passed. That's Callie Russell. In 2019, Callie was left to fend for herself in the middle of the Arctic as a contestant on the survivalist show, Alone. Callie was starving and was in search of food anywhere she could find it. I chose to climb down and I was able to harvest this porcupine. And I was so happy hiking back to my shelter. And I thought, I'm gonna get snowed in, this big storm's rolling in, but I'm just gonna sit in my shelter and eat this porcupine. It's gonna be the best. I'm gonna have a party, a whole porcupine party. Callie's isolation fed her desperation. Her emotions became pure, simple, and loud. She chose her plan and with a protein-rich dinner in hand, she was on cloud nine. But in the blink of an eye, Callie went from elated to painfully disheartened. And then I saw the porcupine had a spotted liver. And I knew from my experience that animals with spotted liver have a disease and you shouldn't eat them. Outside of the show, Callie has lived a nomadic lifestyle for over a decade, living under trees, tarps, and in caves, Callie developed her playbooks for all aspects of wilderness survival. Bears can have a disease called trichinosis, and you can still eat them. You just have to cook the meat very, very well. So I thought that's maybe how I would get around this. I didn't eat the liver and I didn't eat the kidneys, but I ate the rest of the animal, just cooked well, and I think I'm okay. Callie lasted 89 days in the Arctic and finished runner-up in her season of Alone. She narrowly missed out on the million-dollar cash prize due to ill-timed frostbite that Sara pulled from the competition. I had a strategy. And then as soon as I was dropped on location, I realized that the landscape wasn't conducive for that strategy, and I just had to throw it out the window. I had to be willing to just throw my playbook on the fire, use it for tinder, and keep warm was the best use of it. I don't normally advocate throwing playbooks in the fire, but special rules apply when you're trying to keep warm. And fortunately, that wasn't Callie's only playbook at all. As leaders, we know you're better off abandoning an ill-fated plan and pivoting with speed. But when you abandon a plan, you don't stop using your playbook. You need to be constantly updating your playbooks, plural. That's why I believe you don't just need one or two playbooks. You need a whole library. 
And unlike library books, playbooks are living documents, and you should be writing new ideas in the margins. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. I'm so sorry to do. I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process, It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe you don't just need one or two playbooks, you need a whole library. And unlike library books, playbooks are living documents and you should be writing new ideas in the margins. Imagine yourself staring at a faded health and safety instructional poster on the wall of a break room. Half of it is obscured by the coffee machine, and the CPR instructions are outdated. It was made in the era where the accepted remedy for stroke was a stiff drink and some smelling salts. This sad poster on the wall is technically a playbook for saving lives, but it's the opposite of what you'd want for your company. The same is true for the metaphorical playbooks founders and leaders use to scale their business. You want living playbooks that are constantly evolving and refreshing. I wanted to talk with John Chambers about this because as CEO of Cisco, he became a master of the multiple playbook strategy as he grew a modest tech firm specializing in routers into the most valuable company on the planet going into the new millennium. At one point, 80% of the internet flowed through Cisco routers. And this massive growth was due to John's bold use of the playbook concept in everything from mergers and acquisitions to shepherding Cisco through multiple global crises. In our discussion, John was kind enough to delve into some of his most valuable playbooks and how they evolved, which we're sharing with you here today. I do run a playbook again and again. I've made enough mistakes. I know how to do it pretty well. I can see around the corners to see those transitions coming because I've messed it up before and done some of them right as well. We'll hear about five playbooks covering everything from customers to mergers to company culture as we move through John's entrepreneurial journey. Let's dig in with the first playbook from John's library. Number one, the customer playbook. John's playbook building began in his earliest days at Cisco. 
I show up to work at Cisco, and they haven't even got a desk for me. There are only 400 people. There wasn't much organization. They gave me my office, which was inside a closet that had a phone switching system behind it. John joined Cisco in 1991, while the company focused primarily on its successful router system used in offices across the country. But on John's first day, he experienced an eye-opening initiation to the company's unstructured customer service. Somebody came to me and said, we've got a customer that has a real problem. And so I went down to the customer service group to figure out what they were doing wrong, and I had it immediately. What John witnessed when he entered the customer service office shocked him. There was a penguin over to the side, a blow-up penguin, and there were two or three people there. And I said, where's the customer service group? And they said, we're it. You heard correctly. If you were an executive in 1991, having trouble with your office network system, you'd have to call up three guys and an inflatable penguin. So I had it. I knew what the problem was. I jumped into it immediately. They were driven by customers, but they didn't understand customer success and how do you keep your customers happy. We were very good, very fast, but very little structure. It was as if John was searching through the library for the customer playbook, but instead finding the notes for an unpublished manuscript. He had the elements he needed, but it had to be assembled and codified. As John began mentally constructing his customer playbook, he settled on a few core principles. You never let down a customer. You make commitments to them, even if it's a bad financial decision, you deliver. And if you take care of them, they will take care of you. Customers are your balance. I go straight to the customers and they tell me what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong. The essential skill threaded throughout the playbook is listening. How do you listen to customers? The unskilled person kind of thinks, well, you just call them and ask them a couple questions. It's actually listening to what their actual needs are, listening to what their situation and environment is, not just tell me what you want, (laughs) right? It does start with really being committed to listen, not just because you're supposed to. Don't go in, I'm here to sell you a product. Really build the trust relationship. You don't learn very much when you speak. I learn from the questions you ask me, but not from my own speaking on it. And it's a key part to forming that trust relationship. If you're not listening, you're not learning. And learning from your customers is how you keep your product relevant. John kept adding pages to that playbook even after he became CEO four years later. Meetings with customers. Love it. And I spent almost 50% of my time at Cisco with customers. 50% is a lot of time, but time is a true sign of commitment to your customers. Another addition to John's playbook is to keep existing customer relationships strong. This means that even if the customer isn't making new orders, the focus should still be on nurturing the relationship. John likes to say, your track record of how you treat people in the tough times speaks much louder than in the good times. And especially after our experience in the pandemic era, I agree with him. Number two, the mergers and acquisitions playbook. Mergers and acquisitions are a recurring chapter in many scale stories. Whether you're on the board of a company considering a purchase or an employee at a company on the verge of being sold. In Cisco's case, they started writing their acquisitions playbook around one particular deal. At the time, they were all in on router technology but then smaller competitors started developing a newer method of transferring data called switching. While routing connects entire computing networks to each other, switching creates a single network made up of individual computers. Routing was more vast, 
but switches were faster. Cisco's customers began calling John to ask about this new tech. In fact, one of their biggest customers, Boeing, wanted switching so badly through Cisco that they asked John to acquire a promising new switching developer called Crescendo. I looked at this small company and the amazing engineering team that they had, and I thought, let's think about an acquisition. But then I immediately went to the page playbook that there wasn't a playbook. That's right. John went to the A section of his metaphorical playbook library, looking for something to guide him, and nothing was on the shelf. My board at the time said, we know most acquisitions are going to fail. Don't let this first one fail. John was still very new to his CEO role, and M&A had not been a feature in Cisco's scale journey up to this point. Jarred by the lack of an M&A playbook to lean on, John was once again compelled to form the playbook himself. And he leaned on the specific needs of this deal to get started. It included both principles on whether to move forward with the deal and guidelines on how to integrate an acquisition afterward. John decided to pursue Crescendo. He persuaded his board, and Cisco bought the switching startup. What no one at Cisco knew at the time is that the Crescendo acquisition would go on to become a legendary win for the company in its journey to scale. That acquisition ended up being a company that had done $10 million in revenue and ended up generating $13 billion a year for us. The success of John's first acquisition showed him the massive potential of Cisco's M&A strategy. As CEO, John would go on to acquire 180 more companies. Nearly all of the acquisitions were processed using a variation on that original playbook devised for Crescendo. He learned and iterated on the M&A playbook, which became increasingly sophisticated over time. Similarity of strategy and vision. Can you keep the people? Is it really customer-driven? Because if the customers don't love it, you shouldn't be doing it, etc. And can it really make you the difference of being one or two in a category? Don't combine a companies that have different cultures. It sounds basic to you and I, but most companies combine companies based upon the financial opportunity and can it be successful. Acquisitions that put together different cultures almost always feel loosened. In the second half of the 1990s, Cisco scaled aggressively. By 2001, the company had grown from 400 employees to 48,000, and M&A continued to be at the heart of that immense scale. This M&A refinement leads us to our next playbook. Number three, the alignment playbook. As you scale, the larger your library of playbooks needs to become. With scale comes more teams, new market opportunities, and the need for clear communication across the company. Also, a decision can be absolutely wrong for one phase of growth, but right for the next. So this library of playbooks will not only need to grow in number, but also adapt to the different stages of scale. What were some key elements out of the playbook as you generated expertise in some of the really successful acquisitions? You've got to get a process that allows you to move with speed so you don't make the same mistake again and again. I got a call from CEO of the NASDAQ and said, John, many companies are going after this one company. It's a perfect match for you, and you're not in the runnings at all. What's wrong with you? (laughs) John asked for information about the company made a call to their CEO, and arranged to meet him the following day. We spent an hour together, and we had, by lunch, a handshake to do the acquisition for $3 billion. That was Thursday night when I got the lead. 
Friday, midday handshake, got it through both boards of directors, announced Monday morning. This quick turnaround illustrates Cisco's agility and its alignment. Speed only works if you have a replicatable process behind it. Otherwise, you're drawing that play up in the sand and drawing, you move this way, the other guy moves this way like we did when we were kids playing flag football. Yep, and everyone's bumping into each other because no one has actually practiced the play. (laughs) You have to be able to run your plays like a professional sports team does, where you say, all right, hike 17, that means the the fly pattern down the one side, the fake handoff, etc. Everybody knows on the same book. Right. A professional sports team is a great example of an organization that knows how to get everyone aligned for the same play. In fact, we spoke with someone who has a lot of experience with sports playbooks, including writing some legendary ones. You always have a plan of what you want to do offensively, defensively, and special teams. There's blocking schemes, there's running plays, there's passing plays. How do all of these players, 11 of them, orchestrate what you want done? That's veteran National Football League coach Herm Edwards. As a player, Herm was the heart and soul of the Philadelphia Eagles team that went to the Super Bowl in 1981. Two decades later, he became the head coach of the New York Jets, then the Kansas City Chiefs. To a coach like Herm, a playbook isn't a casual document. It's a sprawling Bible. With these big, heavy playbooks, you know, weighed about five, ten pounds, and you're carrying this thing around. You give it to them, then you take them on the grass, and you walk through it. Very slow. Then the third element is, now you go at a speed tempo, where you do it in real life. And life is about this, repetition. So after a while, it becomes a part of this is what we do. These bulky tomes contained hundreds more plays than a team could run in a single game. That's because the coaches, offensive coordinators, defense coordinators, and so on, have spent months analyzing how the opposing team might react in one of a thousand different scenarios. The need for this kind of hyper-preparedness became clear in the 2003 postseason when Herm and the Jets faced off against hotshot quarterback Peyton Manning and his Indianapolis Colts. To win, Herm needed his team to learn their playbooks like the back of their hands. Lo and behold, you know, the game gets going and all of a sudden we make a couple plays and we score. You can see by the second quarter that it's like, uh uh-oh, we're rolling right now, right? And things just are going our way. But then it was halftime. And as the teams, they camped to their locker rooms. Herm knew that this was usually the time to flip to a new page in the playbook because the Colts now had time to regroup and counter what the Jets had been running. Or would they? Sometimes your playbook is so big, you don't want to run a successful play again because you have all these other plays. It's not about the plays. It's about the plays that actually work, right? If it's working, make them stop you. Well, I can't do that again. Why won't you do that again? They haven't stopped it. When they returned to the field, Herm stuck to the plays that worked so well in the first half. Pennington throws, and it's caught by Santana Moss. Pennington gets it to Moss, and it's a touchdown. 
Pennington wheels out and finds Santana Moss in the end zone. The momentum of the game got going, and it's almost like a landslide. You can't stop it. I was trying to actually let off the gas, and he said, Coach, I'm just trying to get off the field, and we just keep making first downs. The score ended 41-0. That freezing January evening marked the first time in history that the Jets had held an opponent to zero points in the playoffs. The playbook has to be versatile enough to allow the players to play. Paper doesn't play. X's and O's don't play. Real people play. It's easy to draw it up, but can you execute it? And then the question is, do you have the players that are good enough to execute it? You cannot ask a player to do something that he's incapable of doing because then you put him in a position to fail. Your job is to make people successful. This game was an example of a playbook working as well as it possibly could and a team being as aligned as they possibly could. If Herm hadn't filled the playbook with 10 times the amount of plays ever needed for a single game, he couldn't have curated the perfect strategy for this particular opponent. And what Herm says is just as relevant in business. You need to give all of your playbooks enough wiggle room that your team can use their individual skill set to best orchestrate the play. And that's why it's important to share responsibility for significant actions within your company. Experience is crucial to building confidence and developing as a member of the team. If John Chambers didn't have every member of his team involved and aligned, Cisco wouldn't have been able to process those acquisitions with such impressive speed. It's one thing to write the playbook. It's a whole other thing to go out on the grass and execute. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. We're back on creating a whole new library of playbooks with John Chambers, former CEO of Cisco. If you're enjoying this episode, deploy your playbook to share it with friends. Just hit the share button in your podcast app. And to hear my complete conversation with John, become a Masters of Scale member at mastersofscale.com. There, you'll hear some great moments we didn't have time for in the episode, like how John learned to stay calm in a crisis by being thrown into dangerous rapids. And you'll hear how John grabbed winning strategies from working at a technology company that lost everything. You won't want to miss it. When we left off, John had scaled Cisco by creating successful playbooks on customer communication, bold acquisitions, and team alignment. But there's another essential playbook John needed to write that would be critical to the company's survival. 
Number four, the crisis management playbook. Remember the dusty, faded, in case of choking safety poster from the beginning of our episode? For all its flaws, it's simple and always accessible. A playbook for crises needs to be both comprehensive and clear enough to be implemented immediately. You don't want to be thumbing through a 5,000-page manual when someone's choking. In Cisco's case, John's first seven years at the helm created thousands of millionaires within the company. Cisco's dominance appeared unshakable. That is, until the early millennium brought with it a rude awakening. I wish I were smart enough to have avoided 2001. Like the rest of the tech industry, John's confidence was sky high. However, nearing the end of 2000, some warning signs began to appear. We knew our order rates, our number of salespeople, every order in the world, and the numbers had never failed me. So when I was going to 70% the first week in December, I thought the market's wrong. The stock market's dropping, but we're only forecasting 35% growth the next quarter. I'd never done less than 50. I'm fine. Next quarter was minus 45% on growth. Mathematically impossible. 25% of my customers didn't stop ordering. They disappeared. All their orders got canceled. In short, John's books looked healthy, but a large number of Cisco's customers began to go out of business. When John checked with his customers, they all said, we're just pausing. What John learned the hard way was that when you hear multiple sources say they're taking a pause, alarm bells should ring. In 2001, the dot-com bubble burst and Cisco was heavily wounded. I laid off 7,500 and some people. I mean, the pain was unbelievable. And I should have been smart enough to know that when the market slowed, that we couldn't be immune. But even amid the devastation of the crash, John used these painful lessons to pull together the first pages of his crisis playbook. I sit out in the, on the roof of my house the night before I make the decision, second-guessing, am I the right person to lead through this? And then you've got to decide if you are, you've got to lead through it and move with tremendous speed. Cisco tightened spending everywhere, pulling back on inventory, killing unnecessary projects. John decided he'd rather cut too much than risk having to cut again. If you have to make a change, do it once. Do it deeper than you think you need to make. Assume it's going to last longer. It's the hardest thing you do as a leader. John also knew that the layoff component, the human factor, was the most momentous. Most important is how you treat the employees that you let go, because first that's your culture and your ethics, but it's most important because that's how the employees who stay are going to look at you. There were three more key pages John added to his crisis playbook. The first was about communication, to be visible as CEO at every step of the journey. When you outline that you're going to make changes, you have to say why you're making them. You've got to deal with your employees, your shareholders, your customers, the media all at one time. And you've got to show them you really know how to navigate through this and you execute on it. The second key principle that he learned in crisis was identifying the source of your troubles. You have to be candid about what's self-inflicted versus external. Only by identifying your own missteps as well as those things that might be unfairly tarnished by outside factors, do you know what really needs to change? Finally, John added a page about focusing on the future because he recognized that a crisis is also an opportunity to break away by identifying your own North Star on the other side. So while competitors were still reeling from the dot-com crash, John mobilized a plan to get the company back on track. 
we outlined the plan. We made all of our changes in 52 days. Day 53, we started gaining share. You come out of the downturns, great companies are built by near-death experiences. That's when you break away from your peers. But you have to learn if, you, if you're going to get the company back out of it, then you've got to learn from it. And then you've got to focus entirely on the future and move forward. Learn from your mistake, but don't spend a lot of time second-guessing and, and waiting for it to occur. In the high emotion of a crisis, the faster you learn, the faster you can shift your energy to new ideas that could be right. That's why it's so important to embrace the infinite learner mindset and get better at being wrong. Leverage every mistake into something that builds your expertise and adds further pages to your playbook. And John did learn. When the country was on the brink of recession in 2007, John was ahead of the curve, thanks to his hard-earned playbook for economic downturns. My top financial institutions, especially in the U.S., suddenly slowed their ordering rate with us. And I called up the CEOs and I said, what's going on? And they said, John, we're just a little bit cautious. We think everything's fine. I went seven out of seven cautious. There's a problem coming. Remember when John didn't think much of his customers pausing their orders in 2000? He now had the experience to recognize it as a glaring warning sign. So I shared it on my quarter conference call that I felt there was something wrong with the economy. I said, I'm seeing that. Early indications in my order rates. And of course, no good deed goes unpunished. My stock got hammered. And they said, well, Cisco's been doing well, but this is clearly something you know, that the CEO is just wrong on. But I stuck to my guns. It was a short-term hit for a long-term gain. John knew he needed to be honest with the company about the grim future. If he wasn't, the team wouldn't be aligned to implement the playbook together. We got the company in line, and nine months later, we were in the Great Recession. In fact, the entire world was deep in the throes of recession. But unlike many businesses, Cisco was relatively stable. I was in great shape cash-wise. We had our expenses under control. We were very aggressive. Because John had read the signs correctly, he was able to put Cisco in a position of strength. And then they took calculated risks their competitors couldn't. We were the only company in the industry that would even ship equipment to automotive industry without having cash paid up front because they were my best customers. And they were in such trouble, people thought they were going to bankrupt. I issued trust and credit to everyone in the automotive industry. At the end of that two-year period, we were number one in every automotive company in the world. In John's crisis playbook, he added a new postscript on taking the right risks, and it worked. Cisco was able to ride out the storm of 2008 and emerge with new advantages. John also reaped the benefits of a team that came together in a challenge. Building that sort of trust makes up yet another part of his leadership story. A playbook on crises is vital to keep updating, even if you're not currently in a crisis. It's easy to forget the massive impact a crisis can have on your business. In fact, we have an entire episode just on the crisis playbook. It's called The Four Core Principles of Crisis Management with Ellen Coleman, the former CEO of DuPont. You can find it in your podcast feed. That brings us to our final playbook. Number five, the culture playbook. A strong culture should be understood by everyone and built by everyone. So how do you articulate the culture? Observe it, then define it. Unlike some of the metaphorical playbooks we've discussed, this one, I do believe, should be written down. If you haven't yet done the work of defining it, your culture might cement 
around ideas you never intended. Once the culture is put into words, you can teach it, cultivate it, and hire for it. And if words fail you, try a different kind of noise. This isn't a live field recording from a wetland. John Chambers actually brought his trusty duck call instrument to our interview. My dad took me duck hunting. And so it's a patient. With the duck call, if I was sitting in my office and I felt things were tight or occasionally I'd bring it into a meeting, I would just without any warning go. That was three calls. It was the male mallard call, it was the female mallard call, and it was ducks feeding. Believe it or not, John's duck calls are part of his personal cultural playbook for keeping the atmosphere light. This is a great reminder that while playbooks can be dense and detailed, not all of them have to be. They just have to work for you. A playbook can be both replicable and individual to you as a leader. Every playbook in the library should feature a choose-your-own-adventure element. We're all better in life when we're relaxed. And under times of pressure, it can get very tense and you've got to find a way to relax yourself. And if you see your team's getting tight, you need to kind of break the ice. And it just relaxes people. And they know it's my way of sending a message about not taking life too serious, ourselves too serious. Of course, duck calls don't relax everyone. Each organization's culture is different because people are different and a culture that inspires one team might totally stifle another. But if you're in any doubt about the power of the duck calls at Cisco, the company's turnover rate was 5% compared to the industry average of 15%. So culturally, John was definitely doing something right. To build a great culture, share something personal and show your human side. Which personal things you share is entirely up to you. Leaders can show their human side by giving personalized gifts, sharing their favorite movie, or, in John's case, channeling his inner Donald Duck. It's a great way to illustrate human leadership on your own terms. In fact, human leadership was a key element of Cisco's culture. To this day, John is reminded of how Cisco's culture of kindness impacted the employees. Six months ago, I was flying, and I was sitting across the aisle from a young woman. She said, you saved my husband's life 20 years ago. Her husband, Scott, was a Cisco employee and got hit by a car while crossing the street outside of the company's headquarters. The injuries Scott sustained were so severe that doctors thought he wasn't going to make it. I knew Stanford Hospital backwards and forwards because I'd go see our employees there. And we just kept helping in the hospital. And over time, he came back, but it was not sure if he could ever recover a lot of the skills that he had before. At that time, the young lady was just dating for six months, and we were all concerned seeing this. There's a very good chance that he may lose her because that's awful hard, a big burden to put somebody under. In a company with tens of thousands of employees, you might expect the CEO to send flowers to the hospital. John, however, was as present as possible for Scott's family and used Cisco's resources to ensure he had the best care. Eventually, Scott began to recover little by little. Soon, John invited him back to work. Here it is 20 years later. She said, we didn't have kids at first because we weren't sure how Scott was going to do. 
And we do now. All of them are amazing. I said, can you give me Scott's number? And I called him and talked to him that night. John's investment in his employees went beyond mentorship and personal development. It was to see them happy and healthy. And his attention didn't end when the term of employment did, or in fact, even his own tenure at the company. A true culture of kindness is built by the personal sacrifice and selflessness of its leaders. But one person doesn't make a culture. It's the entire team. And as John says, it doesn't matter what aspect of the culture it is. The most important thing is that the team is aligned, something Coach Herm Edwards would applaud. Once we decide everybody better get on the bus, you can't sit on the side and say, I might join you later. And I do insist on that. I do have firm expectations of when we commit, you need to be all going in the same direction. After two decades as CEO of Cisco, John stepped down in 2015. When John took the CEO position in 1995, Cisco had over 50 networking competitors and was worth $70 million. By the time he stepped down, almost none of those competitors still existed, and Cisco had grown to become a $150 billion tech giant. We weren't arrogant, we weren't overconfident, but when we went out in the playing field, we expected to win. And we motivated ourselves to do the innovation, to break the glass, to take the risk that others would not take. This is something I'm sure Coach Edwards would agree with too. To reach the heights you want, you need to make bold moves based on the state of play on the field. And when it's time for you to move on, you help mentor your replacement. John remained on the board for a further two years to ease the cultural adjustment to a new CEO in Chuck Robbins. And in 2018, John founded JC2 Ventures, a venture firm that primarily partners with software startups in cybersecurity and AI. There, he's sharing his playbooks with the next generation of leaders. Because as John knows, at the end of the day, you can't hold on to your library books forever. By mentoring leaders across multiple sectors, John is amassing an even more extensive library of playbooks. To fully embrace the infinite learner mindset, I encourage all listeners to go in search of new playbooks. In fact, every Masters of Scale episode and course is its own form of a playbook. So get in formation and prepare for the snap. All right, hike 17. I'm Reed Hoffman. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future, and Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Master the Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. 
Our head of content and production is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Bray, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Chris Gautier. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nolt, and Brad Worrell. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, Aria Finger, Saida Sapieva, Greg Beato, Adam Heiner, Alfonso Bravo, Colin Howarth, Willem Krolls, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Samuel Puta, Anna Pisano, Sarah Tarter, Leah Sermetis, Charlie Manessis, Chineme Azequena, Emily McManus, Hallie Bondi, and Sierra Black. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.